Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Good day, everyone. Happy Friday. Friday, May 14th. An infamous day. My eldest daughter was born on this day, 1998. So, wish her a happy birthday. Yeah. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. And we get a uh, we have a, we have a, a a a non-alcoholic day, I guess. Unfortunately for for us here in in uh, the the eastern seaboard, I'm having a, a cold brew coffee. I, ho- I hope uh, Juliet that you have a glass of wine or something in your time zone. It's perfectly legitimate. I'm on coffee for now, but I was oh. that. But it's sort of like. Five o'clock, you know, four to five. It's sort of getting hmm. to a better time. It's yeah. in that sweet spot on a Friday, I think. Yeah. I mean, but before we get started, I just want to remind um, everyone that um, everything here is for educational purposes or, and, and entertainment purposes. This is not investment advice. We want to have a wide-ranging conversation and explore uh, really interesting ideas. So we're going to be boundless in our discussions, um, and thus it is not investment advice. Get that from people other than the four scallywags on this call. And um, yeah, please, if you have an opportunity to like, share, comment, write comments on the uh, Resolve Riffs show, that helps us a lot, helps us get great guests like Juliet to come and join us and share her thoughts and ideas and expertise. And with that, why don't I turn it over to uh, you gentlemen to ask Juliet to introduce herself or make your opening comments. Yeah, Julia, maybe just um, for the benefit of, of uh, watchers and listeners who are not familiar with your work, maybe just go through your tra- career trajectory and what led you to write the um, macro newsletter and the, the business that you're currently running. Yeah, 
So um, I started in um, banking and strategy about um, 22 years ago at um, JP Morgan. Um, at JP Morgan, I did pretty much everything, strategy to investment and also like um, um, client uh, advisory uh, focused mainly on, on hedge funds, which was really the, the hot thing um, at the moment. Um, after I had um, two children, you know, in 2011, 12, I decided that, you know, there's no way I was going to go back to the corporate world. Um, I was way too unruly to fit in the Anglo sphere anyway. So I would have never made it to like the where I really belonged and where I deserved to be. So I decided to um, set up my own company, doing exactly what I had done for uh, most of my professional life, which was basically advising traders, um, portfolio managers, uh, investors um, in, in, in macro in, in, in general. And I started JDI research in uh, at the end of 2015. And I've now been running for the past um, six years, actually. How do you perceive the difference in um, objectives and just the character of your research when you're doing it on your own as part of like an independent consulting um, effort relative to how your role was perceived in the bank? So, I mean, definitely it's day and night. I mean, it, it started in, in a bank, it started to be uh, initially like you were basically able to like talk um, to clients directly and, you know, you could, so you could actually be like the same way um, I am today. But after the 2000, you know, after the 2008, 2009 crisis, um, you know, research started to be very much segregated and there was like much more regulations which meant that, you know, either you were in research, like completely split from the floor and literally you couldn't even speak to clients directly or you were in sales and, and there wasn't really not um, a way for someone like me to actually add value to clients anymore because, you know, I would have to be sitting on the sales desk and, and you know, sell uh, rather than really spend as much time as I wanted to actually dig into the sims that I want to um, show, to, show, show to clients. So I think, you know, what I'm doing right now is really, um, you know, independently. Uh, I'll write all my research, by the way. So there is absolutely no one like calling me, like sometimes at, at JP Morgan, you would have like a government calling you to say like, sorry, guys, you can't say that. Sorry, you can't short my currency. Otherwise, I'm going to pull out all the, uh, all the business from like um, all the area of the banks. Uh, or you could just have like someone, um, you know, the head of um, of, of research at, at, at JP Morgan, whether Joyce Chang or, or Yan Lois, just completely disagreeing with uh, uh, with your stem, which means like basically you couldn't, you know, think the way you wanted. Uh, I mean, with JDI research, it's just completely me. It's it's my research. I spend the hours like um, digging into uh, everything I want to do. The way I work is basically I think um, like a trader. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of my clients, they don't really have the time to um, leverage what they would want to research uh, in terms of like market themes. And, and so the way I see myself is really like leveraging a part of their brain and, and doing the work that they would like to do um, if, if they have time, basically. And I think because I've got this background um, in, in, in trading and, and investment, I know exactly what, what clients are looking at. I know exactly what investors are looking at. I know how markets work, and I can basically connect the dots 
from macro to, to markets, which I think very few are able to do these days. Uh, it takes a lot of experience and, and a lot of work, really. Yeah, I think it's it, it distinguishes you from a lot of the uh, macro strategists and thinkers out there because you're actually thinking through this prism of trading and how things are going to be as opposed to how you think they should be, which is kind of this tussle that you often find in the uh, macro commentary. So, so I wonder if you could kind of give us a little bit of uh, detail into your framework. You know, you, you, you look at flows, you look at some technicals, uh, some narrative involved. How, how would you describe your, your macro framework? So um, my macro framework really is um, putting it, putting in a massive amount of work into um, describing the current uh, situation, whether it's from the, the macro side of things or whether it's from the, the market side of things. Um, there is a, an enormous uh, amount of knowledge that you can get as to you know, what's going on right now. And you can actually get it crystal right if you're actually putting in the hours. So when, when I write a new report, I basically spend five, six days just looking at like all my charts, all my indicators. I basically look, um, you know, I, I write nothing. I've got no idea what I'm going to write about. And, and I'm starting to like get a picture about what's going on, what markets believe will happen. And my framework is really to find where markets are wrong. And, and that's my opportunities. So it takes me about like five, six days to basically have the perfect crystal clear picture of what's happening, use um, my judgment to actually, you know, given my crystal clear picture of what's going on right now, uh, use my judgment to, um, um, to make sense of what will happen in the future and where markets, where I disagree with markets. And, and that's how I find um, really high uh, risk reward um, trade ideas, basically. So it's it's not a contrarian view. It's just a way to you know just find where markets are wrong, and it's just been working every single year for the last um, six years at JDI Research, and a framework that you know really works well for me and for my clients. So Juliet, um, just in your in your April um, note, you have this statement: as the world heals from the pandemic, financial repression remains the most urgent macro challenge of our times, and this is this is a theme that we've been orbiting um, internally for quite a while, and, and several of the guests that that we've had on have echoed this sentiment. I'm just I'd be very curious if how you frame this, or maybe frame this for um, the people on this call, how you think about financial repression, what are the causes, what are the impacts, and and what are some of the externalities that you're observing, both politically and economically. And for me, financial repressions is is what makes uh, those that have not no access to leverage and no access to escape financial repression. For example, by you know buying equities or jumping in the uh, crypto space, um, you know the, the the ones that have other things to do in life than actually looking at markets and preserving their wealth. Um, it's basically debasement. Uh, you know, if, if for the last twenty years your salary has gone up. Um, you know, 10% and house prices have gone up like uh, 200%, you've basically lost a lot of purchasing power in the process. And unfortunately, while central banks, um, you know, feel 
very comfortable like uh, digging a hole of like real yields, uh, you know, with like in the US, in Germany, it's just, just unbelievable. I mean, you've got like inflation now at like 4% and, and, and yields at like zero, which means like you, we've, we've, had, we've got basically real yields at um, the lowest um, uh, place ever. And, and, and it's basically about debasing um, the middle class and, and debasing uh, anyone who doesn't have the risk appetite, the, the access to leverage, or um, uh, basically the, the, the knowledge to, to basically escape uh, debasement and, you know, basically try and like basically always uh, chase your tail. And, um, and, you know, that applies to people that are pretty clued up as well, because, you know, I've been, you know, clearly debased in, in, in the past 15 years. I mean, I, I advise clients, but I don't actually do much um, uh, for with my own wealth. I mean, I've stayed for a very long time uh, in bonds and, and et cetera. And only for the last two years, I, I realized that actually just running a business is just not sufficient anymore. I mean, I actually have to, like, uh, start investing my, my own money as well to avoid and, you know, like buy properties and, and, and et cetera. Interesting. Yeah. The, um, we've been a, a bit of a sidebar, but, but I've been thinking a lot more about sort of goals based investing and how such a, a large portion and increasing and accelerating portion of um, investors right now cannot hope to achieve their required returns, holding um, safer assets or more conventional assets. And it when, when you can't achieve your required returns on a traditional sort of efficient frontier, then it drives you into high variance assets, right? You begin to have a preference for high variance because you need a lottery payoff in order to be, to be able to achieve your financial objectives, right? And so I, I'm just wondering to what extent this per, this perception by a broader proportion of investors that they need lottery payoffs to be successful is driving some of this multiple expansion in equities. And, and so, you know, we certainly perceive that equities are expensive and have spoken at, on different occasions about how equities can be both expensive and therefore the expected returns are lower than average at the same time, they're attractive because there's, you know, they're attractive relative to the other investments that are available to you. Where do you sort of lie on on that spectrum with regards to traditional assets? Well, firstly, I mean, I don't think equities are, are a lottery ticket um, at all. Um, I think maybe you're looking with your sort of like a American angle, but if you actually look in Europe, uh, you know, large majority of, of savings are still basically in life insurance, <laughs> so which are basically yielding zero. And people have not quite realized yet that, you know, the, the way they're going to achieve retirement is basically gone. So even in, 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 in countries like UK, France, Germany, I think that the average um, saver basically are like, has only like 20 percent equities. Um, I think in the US, it's uh, now like 40 percent. I mean, it's it's very far away still from where I think people should be um, right now, given you know financial very high like financial repression and and the fact that in the end the bondholders are going to be the ones that are paying for the crisis. So 
I think it makes absolutely no sense to have like 20% equities. And I've actually tried to push myself. You know, I've been basically like guilty of just, you know, thinking I'm already working so hard. My returns are already kind of like driven by markets because, you know, when you have like massive, massive crash, crashes, you'll be losing clients, hedge funds are going to close and, and et cetera. So I've, I've always been super reluctant to actually put my any of my earnings, any of my retirement future funds in, into equities. But for the first two years, for the, for the last two years, I've actually really pushed myself to basically save through equities, um, which I don't think are expensive, by the way. Um, I think if you look at where we are in terms of um, financial repression, we're just nowhere close um, to the levels that we reached um, in, in 99, 2000, which were like proper bubbles. Um, also, I, I think we, we headed to like a completely different world as well uh, with, with a step up uh, in real growth, which means that actually I think that uh, real rates can move up uh, without equities crashing. So, so there are a couple, a couple of them. I'm still, I've been bullish equities basically since yeah. like March last year, bullish inflation since March last year. Every month I review the view and I've just reviewed it in, in, in the last report. And I still very much believe that it's it's very difficult to depart from um, mm. long equities uh, at this point. As, as a means from a personal perspective of hedging your human capital risk, you can also consider owning some tail hedge type protection products in your personal portfolio as an individual who garners some of their wealth and business returns from equity markets so that in fact your portfolio could do significantly uh, positive returns during some sort of market crash. Just as, a, as an aside, this is a, an idea that dates back to Meb Faber talking about um, you know, advisors and portfolio managers and head fund managers actually having some of their personal wealth in things that do well when their business doesn't. Anyway, it's a yeah. I mean, that's a very good point, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it makes complete sense. Yeah, uh, but uh, we're talking uh, retirement. At, at, yeah. at that point, hopefully, my business won't won't matter. Yeah, as much. totally. Yeah. But in the, in the inter intermediate period, if you're going to suffer cash flow reduction, then you would have investments kick in that would uh, help buoy that. Yeah. Anyway. Then I should, be really short the point. I should be short vol then because um, if vol completely collapses, then everybody thinks they're like geniuses. They buy everything and it just well, rallies you'd, you'd all the be, time. Who needs advice? Exactly. You'd be long, yeah, you'd be <laughs> long vol. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Getting back to your point about, you know, sort of the, the, the move to more equity-like investments and dovetailing on what Adam was saying earlier, do you think some of these things are also the reason why we're seeing such uh, robust interest in the crypto space, everything from Bitcoin to Ethereum to the various altcoins? Um, what are your thoughts in that in that space as, as you see that the, the, the sort of framework that you're uh, laying out play out? So uh, I, I dived in the, down the, the rabbit hole, like in, in the last um, report, so uh, in March, um, I really wanted to um, uh, understand like deeply whether there was a way, you know, this was going somewhere or whether it was just like basically pure pyramid scheme and I should just like um, completely ignore it. Um, what I found uh, was definitely like really mind blowing. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Um, what I found is basically that the, uh, the crypto ecosystem uh, basically re revolutionize uh, finance in a way that 
um, completely makes sense to like people like me. So what what do I need today? Um, I need access to leverage. I think the, the problem today is like everybody's talking about the leverage, uh, but the truth is that unless you're really rich or, or you're basically like a, a hedge fund, you basically don't have access to leverage. I mean, you know, you, you can even against your house, it's, it's very difficult to, to remortgage. So you can never really extract uh, any of the value that you would want uh, to actually escape like debasement and, and, and financial repression. So that, that's one of, of my main issues, like a middle class, um, you know, lambda, you basically don't have access to, to leverage unless you basically have like a really good private banker. And the second thing is obviously uh, the, the really low money velocity uh, in the traditional system, which is the reason why um, basically rates are, have collapsed and you're basically getting zero return um, and on uh, on your um, on your equity, on your money. So basically the crypto world, even if it's like, at the moment, purely speculative, basically answers both questions. And I found that really like fascinating. So you've got much higher velocity, much higher vol, uh, much higher, um, very high, um, um, uh, very high number of, of, of opportunities. And I can basically see a world where you can uh, democratize finance, e.g., anyone with any assets would be able to like borrow against them. So, you know, it would obviously start with your house, which suddenly become, goes away from being like a pure consumption to something that you can actually leverage against. But then you're obviously going to go into um, your, your retirement portfolio as well. Uh, at the moment for any Lambda, it's really difficult to be able to like monetize, um, you know, a, a financial portfolio. I mean, you, you might have a private banker and they will give you the leverage, but anyone who's just like a, doesn't have a, access to a private banker cannot do that. So I find really a world of opportunity that makes sense and basically will um, open up a whole world of like a much wider uh, money growth uh, in a completely different system. And what's amazing as well, it's basically this money growth is the rubber band for, for banks to basically uh, become much more dynamic, uh, stop looking at just uh, private uh, clients in terms of like leverage and in terms of uh, where they're going to be uh, making profits from. Um, and, and, and also, uh, it, it's also a rubber band for, for central banks to realize that at some point, uh, debasement and, and money growth is going to hit a wall where basically money is going to be leaking into the into a different system. So for, for a macro person uh, like me, it actually makes complete sense at, at, at many levels. And that's why I basically like, you know, started to recommend clients actually take it seriously. And, and take, you know, taking it seriously for me is like actually consider that the sort of like um, eight, 10 percent uh, return that you can get in those like um, uh, in that crypto world um, uh, is actually something that should be considered. And I'm not saying like you know put all your savings into that, but I think it's worth um, putting some savings into it. And and the way I understand it as well, Ethereum is the way is 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 the place where everything will happen. And you know whether Elon Musk like it or not. I don't think uh, Dogecoin uh, blockchain is, is actually going to allow all those smart count contracts. 
uh, to actually operate. So I basically, uh, you know, started to um, uh, look at Ethereum about um, two months ago, and um, you know, almost thinking about retiring now because <laughs> I'd like doubled my savings. And <laughs> uh, now, joke apart, I didn't put everything into Ethereum, uh, but I really like I, I really like the concept. I completely agree that at this point, it's it's purely speculative. But you know, so was Amazon when they were just selling books, um, in you know at the end of the nineties, and, and and I see a new system uh, that democratizes finance, and that makes sense, um, you know, at, at so many levels. Do you see the the um, the interest rates? So let's call it a risk free rate. Do you see the risk free rate being pulled down in crypto land to traditional land? Or do you see the traditional land being pulled up um, to match some of the risk premia uh, and, and fees available or, or um, uh, rates of return available? Where, where do you see that settling out in the middle in any one extreme or the other? I think we're going to be settling down in the middle. And, and I definitely see an element of convergence between rates that are available uh, in the crypto world and rates that are available in, in tra traditional finance. I think in the end, they're going to be ending up competing against each other uh, once we basically see evolu an evolution um, uh, from like, you know, shadow banks that are actually able to provide leverage and that are actually growing the monetary base globally. Naturally, you know, a higher monetary monet, monetary base will mean uh, higher interest rates as well, and and that's definitely part of my thesis. Uh, that you know, I really think that um, in in terms of rates, this time we're going to normalize and much higher than is currently priced by the market. You've just drawn kind of a really interesting narrative arc for for macro thinking. And there's so many threads to pull on. And I'm also cognizant that once we really go down the crypto rabbit hole in terms of this discussion, there's kind of no turning back. So I, I just wanted to really take a step back and go back to some of the reasons why you're bullish uh, on equities and you're bullish. I guess the, the inflationary part is, is somewhat obvious, at least in the short term, but you seem to be sanguine uh, also in the medium term. So I, I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on the the features and the indicators that you were looking at that give you uh, that underpin your bullish case for for equities, and then uh, uh, we can build on that. I wonder if in that as well you could differentiate on equities as well. U.S. Yeah. versus global for sure. Yeah, or EM, all that. Yeah. So uh, the the way I think about inflation is is basically the place where you're going to basically equate uh, demand, uh, supply and demand. So um, I look at demand um, at the moment and I see only positive. Um, firstly, obviously, we've got like a, um, a monetary policy, which is super loose. But of course, you will all agree that it didn't work for the past like 30 years to have like loose monetary policy. So why would it work uh, in the future? And, and really, the answer is 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 crystal clear to me is that monet monetary policy is only basically supposed to facilitate uh, and to cheapen fiscal policy. So if you've got just like really loose monetary policy and and basically nothing uh, at the back, it's basically like just like pushing on the string. You're basically leading to you 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 you're creating. Um, money base, but there's basically no money velocity. 
uh, and there's like no animal spirits and 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 basically money base is just gonna say stay stay where it is uh, what we've got this time is both sides of the equation and basically an economy that is both working on monetary and fiscal legs and and for the first time in in, in 30 years we're actually working on both legs and we're not only having like a, a bit of a, a fiscal push we're having like five trillions uh, uh, in the US which by the end of the year could easily turn into 10 trillions and of course it's not going to be 10 trillions in the next year it's 10 trillions over the next 10 years but it's sustainable like fiscal um, fiscal loosening so suddenly you just have like a, a, a macro policy that that makes sense on on one side uh, very loose monetary policy and that's facilitating uh, fiscal policy the reason monetary didn't work before is because it wasn't putting money where it was going to be spent. And, and this time, that's exactly what fiscal is, is doing, uh, putting money into the right pockets and basically going direct instead of, um, you know, relying on like trickle down uh, economy, which which the Fed has been uh, doing in the, path, in the past. So in my opinion, that's that's really a complete revolution of the macro framework. And, and a revolution takes a long time to reprice. So in terms of what where we are today, um, we basically have like very strong uh, inflationary pressure uh, driven by, uh, clearly driven by like, you know, obviously like the, the demand, pent up demand, but also it's not only pent up demand. If you look at all senior loan officials, loan official loan uh, officer service, you actually find that everywhere across the world, whether it's corporates, whether uh, it's consumers, um, or, and whether it's, uh, it's for mortgages or whether it's for consumptions, um, banks really believe that um, the will to borrow is actually going up quite dramatically. So you've got cheap money, and, and, and consumers actually realize that it will not be cheap forever, um, which is really the difference for, for the animal spirit. If I tell you that rates are at zero and they're going to be at zero forever, you're not really going to want to borrow because you know it's, it's still going to be there next year. So it's really about all about greed and fear. And I can see the greed and fear at the moment in the data. Uh, and, and you can say money is cheap and people want to borrow it. Uh, so, so that's one thing on, on the demand side. And obviously you've got all fiscal. So you've got fiscal demand, monetary policy that is loose, and the willingness to basically chase prices higher. And on the supply side, uh, it's really interesting. But, uh, you know, people have been locked in at home for the last uh, basically 12, like, you know, 12, 18 months. Um, uh, and, and suddenly, you know, everything reopens and we're going to have fun again. And you're asking people to go back to work. And, you know, a lot of like people I'm talking to, they're like, actually, they've got high savings and they'd rather just, you know, take advantage of the next three months and <laughs> go back to a bit of fun rather than, uh, going to like uh, wait uh, in in restaurants and and so it's it's very hard everywhere you look it's actually really hard to find to find employees so I think that's that's going to be like a, a, a short term story and eventually like employment will recover uh, fully and I would say probably into the start of 2022 so you've got some uh, inflation pressures that will uh, dissipate by the end of the year. But I don't think demand is going to go away. So that basically, and 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 to feed that demand, you can see as well that capex is really picking up as well. 
And, and that's really interesting story because the, the, the macro story of the last 20 years is that corporates were basically egging onto each other, uh, trying to like buy back, buy back stocks rather than invest into anything. So you had a, a chronic deficiency the uh, cr chronic deficiency um, in, in, in capital investment, which is, you know, suddenly being solved. And you can see it in the data, like capital uh, capital investment intentions are like picking up to levels like we haven't seen uh, uh, in many years. So I think we, we on, on the back of higher demand and higher capex, we're actually going to step up in growth. Um, I'm not worried about an, uh, unemployment. I think employment will be, um, uh, sorted, but it will take time, which basically pushes up inflation higher um, on, on the supply side until the end of the year. But basically, we emerge into 2022 thanks to pricing power, higher demand, and basically capex into like a macro equilibrium, which is actually superior to what we had in the past 20 years. And, and in my opinion, that means a higher equilibrium rate. And that means that actually the Fed while staying at zero, is actually going to get um, um, more and more accommodative um, uh, this year with basically like a real rate staying where it is because, you know, they're waiting for um, a real progress uh, on the economy. And at the same time, the higher the rising R star means that you're going to get more and more accommodative. And in the end, it's, it's almost the markets that are going to be forcing the Fed to, 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 to basically hike rates. And, and that's going to be something that is like a positive for equities rather than a negative. And for me, that's really the trade this year is, is to realize that higher interest rates is not a, a negative on aggregate for equities anymore. And I know it was in the past, but what I'm saying is that it, it's not going to be the case this year. And that's really going to be the, the, the interesting um, theme that's going to be taking many um, investors off guard. Now, looking at sectors, obviously, uh, I'm recommending se sectors that are much more uh, positively correlated with higher interest rates. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that I think you should be um, uh, selling tech. I mean, I was having a discussion with a client yesterday about like Apple and, and Amazon. I think the real story there is that are those companies really like growth? I mean, you know, the, the, the definition of growth sectors is basically sectors that have like uh, exponential earnings, basically priced so, so far along the curve that they're basically becoming like long duration assets. But I don't think anyone can say that, you know, Apple or Amazon are like the hot and, and emerging like um, sectors. I mean, I think they're going to trade much more like mature, uh, mature sectors. So I find it in still and cyclicals, but I'm really uh, recommending like um, uh, cyclicals much more than growth sectors with the caveat that some of the growth is not really that much, um, you know, growth sector anymore. Yeah, a lot of the FANG stocks are definitely more on the mature side because although they do have the promise of delivering a lot of cash flow into the future, right now they're, they're generating a, a massive amount of cash flow. So, so they are reality with an optionality into the future. But you, uh, from what I was reading in your last report, you are also somewhat, or maybe not somewhat, but outright bullish in, in banks and financials in general because they would benefit from this uh, uh Unflattening the of the curve and the, the the curve, yeah, steepening of the curve, yeah. starting to, to steepen again. 
But how would you square that with uh, the decentralized finance, the DeFi uh, revolution that we may be witnessing uh, right now, as well as the CBDCs, right, the, the central bank digital currencies that could provide uh, uh, sort of this alternative where, where, where people are going to be banking maybe directly with the central bank? Obviously, this is the 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 nightmare scenario for banks. It's not necessarily how it's going to be playing out, but just the prospect of that and the disruption that all the, the crypto revolution brings to the table. How do you square that? Oh, f firstly, I don't believe in, um, in, in not having the service that fits. Um, and, and I think, you know, the reason Amazon did so well is because they have this amazing client service and where, where basically you're not happy with anything. They send you something else. You don't even have to send back any, anything. I mean, I was mind blown and by Amazon basically delivering me, uh, no, Apple delivering me like a new iPhone uh, in the mountain. There was like two meters of snow in February and they basically delivered me the, the new Apple phone the new iPhone that had broken mine in like four hours. And, and that's exactly what, what those companies are about. Um, I, I very much believe that if you want the uh, crypto world to really evolve, you have to make it um, extremely consumer friendly. And that means having someone to speak to. So I don't, we also, I do find uh, huge opportunities in, in the crypto world. I don't. I don't really see pure um, DeFi as 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 the way we will end up um, uh, in the end. Um, so I think what will happen is much more like a, a sort of like convergence uh, from banks, like sort of like dipping into the crypto world rather than basically bank being completely disrupted. So I, I put a lot of value into a customer service, and I think you know that's something that you can see in in the past as well. Uh, companies that have tried to um, companies that have tried to um, to basically cut out completely the the consumer service are, are going to be failing, and the ones that are really doing well are the ones that are embracing both uh, the sort of like app world and 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 the digital world, but with a, 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 an excellent co um, consumer service. I mean, I've the just hybrid like, model. Sorry, well, the hybrid model. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so that means that I don't think the financial, I think the financial world will have to evolve and, and I think be democratized and they're going to have to move towards crypto rather than rather than being disrupted. If you think about the idea of one single bank, <clears throat> walking it through to its conclusion, there's, there's several problems with that. The Fed is going to be the renderer of service, so a, a private or a government institution, and then they're going to do all the AML. So they're going to house every smidgen of AML and KYC in order for you to access the banking system. And then you're going to have the centralization of all that data. Um, th that That's, to my mind, something is simply that's not going to happen. So that, that model is, is, you know, unlikely to occur. Um, but I do think, you know, that the way that the banking system converges, you're already seeing it. You're seeing the crypto banks set up yeah. companies like Voyager um, that are setting up interfaces and then going to be offering bank cards and credit cards and, and easy pathways to fiat. So it, yeah. it's going to be a really interesting transition. Um, but that the, the CBDC thing, I think, might be a, a layer that operates internationally. I know that Canada and Singapore, for example, are doing some tests on how they clear transactions between governments and maybe it works down yeah. from there. Crypto is the 
black hole that swallows all other conversations. <laughs> so before we go th down across the event horizon into all crypto all the time, I just want to stay on the equity theme for a minute because one of the things that um, I find interesting in the context of trying to price equities is the fact that we haven't seen any labor cost inflation in the last 20 to 30 years. And so companies have seen, have had an opportunity to, to increase profit margins for, you know, so the profit margins today are way beyond profit margins in any other um, historical period. Now, part of that is certainly the networked economy, right? Obviously, the uh, companies like Facebook and Netflix um, and um, increasingly anything in the cloud, et cetera, um, or anything that relies on networks has very low capex to profitability ratios. You don't need a lot of labor in order to deliver a huge amount of productivity. But um, there's still a, a, a labor input cost, especially as the, the economy of goods begins to take shape again, right? So as part of your thesis, um, we're now creating real demand in the economy. So there's going to be a, a, a revamp or an acceleration in the development of real industrial production around the world. So you're going to need labor for that. Sure, you're also going to need CapEx and robotics and automation and that sort of stuff. But it's inevitable that you're also going to need labor, right? And we're already seeing labor cost push. So I'm just wondering, what's your thesis on how the corporate sector is going to be able to absorb cost push inflation in, in terms of labor supply demand dynamics and what that means for profit margins. And if you, if I think central banks are going to be able to be on hold in terms of their interest rate policy, so long as the cost of labor is under control, if we do see a major structural shift higher in, in labor costs, do you see that as a catalyst for a, a more urgent move by central banks to get to a more normalized interest rates? So I see those two dynamics maybe interacting, maybe urgent and faster rises in interest rates at the same time you're getting margin compression in the corporate sector from rising labor costs. How do you factor that into equity prices and the equity risk premium? So f firstly, I think um, um, you're referring to one of the chart that I, you know, I really cherish that was in um, in my report this week, the divergence uh, between um, profits and 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 basically um, uh, wages, and what it's showing is basically for the past thirty years, uh, workers have not been paid uh, their value, and and I think it's it's really a disease in the economy to see basically no mean reversion uh, in profits. And, and it's, it's really a problem uh, for the economy. In, in fact, you know, um, in, in the last century, one of the main, um, one of the main um, um, win was like a, when, when Ford uh, decided that, you know, producing cars was like a, a great, but if the workers couldn't actually afford the cars, then there was like a way where basically capital, capitalism would not work because you can't, the reason for me for like the lack uh, of investment in the past 20 years is basically due to like the, the, the constant uh, need to basically like squeeze, uh, uh, increase profit margins because you're not actually increasing sales. 
So it's a lack of demand that was really the, the issue. So I find it really interesting that everybody's like suddenly worrying about like higher wages and how it's going to be squeezing margins. Of course, it's going to be squeezing margins. But the bottom line is, is much more important is that there's going to be more sales. So like, you know, squeezed margins on, on, on better sales. I mean, you know, if we were like 30 years ago, it was like the obvious answer uh, to where we are right now. So it really makes me laugh. Like um, and people really worried about wages going up. I mean, for me, I find that um, extremely um, healthy. And, and, and I really hope that the sort of like period of like socialism in the US is actually going to drive like increased bargaining power. As you were saying, um, exactly right. There was like a sort of like a monopoly in, in the Amazon and the Apple where it was really difficult uh, to move from one job to the other. And there was they were also even like putting in, putting in legal reasons like you couldn't move from one job to the other, which really killed uh, bargaining power. So I really hope that bargaining power will increase and, and that, you know, that there will be this pull um, for, for higher wages. And, and, and that's really part of, for me, it's really part of the economy stepping up uh, for like a broader uh, and more inclusive growth. I think really the key thing is like more inclusive growth and more money going in the pocket of like that are likely to spend it. Um, you know, there's there's not much point like making profits if they're never going to be reinvested in the economy, which has been the case for the last 20 years. If like with profits, all you're doing is basically buying back shares. Um, that's not an economy. It's a pyramid scheme. So we're in violent agreement on the positive externalities of um, increasing power to labor. I, 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 um, I'm just curious because I see this as a as a headwind for because I, I think the thesis is we are we're we're entering a period of accelerating and sustained growth in the real economy, which is extremely exciting. So we're we're on the same page there. Where I'm trying to square the circle is if there's going to be rising input costs, if we have a collapse in corporate profit margins. I mean, the the entire growth in the market cap of the corporate sector has been a function of declining rates leading to higher valuations and increasing margins leading to high, like higher profits, right? Yeah. So if we're going to have structural structural rising rates over the over the next little while, anticipating rising labor costs and rising labor costs are the single greatest factor in CPI and the and the Fed's impression of inflation. So you may have an urgent or, or accelerated trajectory of rising rates. At the same time, you've got a, a, a profound upward shock in input costs to the corporate sector in both labor and goods, just looking at the cost of commodities and, yeah. and um, unfinished goods, et cetera. Then you're going to have collapsing profit margins, a rising discount rate. And you may, even though in the face of a much stronger and healthier really economy, like you've got a lower... You've got lower equity returns. But you don't really have like collapsed profit margins if you actually have pricing power, right? That, that's that's also the case that, you know, if, if rages are, are, are going up on their own and you, you actually don't have pricing power, then your margins collapse. But what I'm seeing at the moment is there is massive pricing power and, and, and companies see pricing power. And, and because there is inflation everywhere in the world, it's actually going to be quite easy to just get into a more... 
virtuous cycle of inflation uh, where you don't actually need to have like much tighter um, profit margins. You, you might get, you know, a bit smaller profit margins, but I don't see a collapse. So you passing on the cost of inputs in the, in the form of um, commodities and unfinished goods, for example, it, I see that being relatively easy, right? And you're starting to see the CEOs yeah. and, and uh, CIOs on um, earnings calls talk about the fact that they're raising the price of, you know, basic goods, consumer goods, et cetera, like Tide and Procter and mm -hmm. Gamble and J and J. You're seeing good po uh, cost pass through in, uh, of that inflation. I wonder if you'll see the same pass through potential for labor costs. I think that is that is a, a bit of a wild card that we need to sort of see mm -hmm. pass through. But even if you don't, even if we assume that we can pass that through, an acceleration in the the trajectory of, I mean, I understand that the market is able to absorb higher yeah. rates up to a certain point, but there will be a threshold beyond sort of a 4% um, inflation rate, for example, historically has led to a major contraction in market multiples. So, you know, there will be an inflection point, I think, where multiples will contract, even if margins are preserved and sales are increasing at a, at a, a rapid rate. But the, not to dwell on that much further, do you see, and you, I, I know you do see because of having read your reports, but how are you viewing the relative opportunities in different segments of the equity market, perhaps regionally, right? Europe versus the US or non-US versus uh, foreign domestic emerging. What's your view and, on that? And how that might tie into the dollar, because I think oftentimes that is uh, one of the variables that everyone uh, sort of hinges on with regards to bull relative bullishness on the uh, USDM versus emerging market uh, uh, equity complex. So I wonder if you might uh, loop in the, the currency considerations there. So, I mean, in terms of sectors, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking at like cyclicals. I think there's enormous value in Europe. Uh, I think everybody has been loving to hate Europe uh, for the past 20 years. And, and, and as a result, you've got, um, uh, you know, I think there's amazing value there. And also because of um, what we were talking about earlier, which is the fact that like equities in Europe are massively under-owned. So like, you know, if you think, um, you know, basically the average saver is like 20% of equities, which in my opinion makes up absolutely no sense. At the minimum, you should be headed to like 30, 40%, which is more like uh, what you're seeing in, in the US. And I think that's part of the reason for, for, for value there. Uh, obviously, the other reason is that uh, it's a sector that was heavily weighted towards financials, insurance, all those sectors that are like super sensitive to like uh, steep, steeper curves. So, e.g., they're, they're doing really badly with like flat curves or like inverted curve. So, I believe very strongly that um, curves should be much steeper than than we are right now. Um, in fact, you know, like. You don't need to look at, at at crypto. I mean, if you just like if you were just short boons for the last um, five months, like I've been recommended, you know that's like a really strong uh, trend and uh, and trade that you can probably leverage up uh, as much as you want to get some similar returns as like Bitcoin. Just um, uh, joke apart. That's a really very strong belief of mine that like European and US curves are just way 
too flat. I mean, it makes absolutely no no sense for the U.S. to be able to print like you know five trillion, ten trillion, and basically like um, um, finance it at like a minus. We're still like like in the ten-year real rates are like nine minus ninety base point. And like it makes absolutely no sense. So one of my very strong belief is that today's super easy monetary conditions are basically the path to much higher rates. And and the reason and the fact that we have much very low rates today, very low real rates, should mean that we actually can get much higher rates later uh, in the cycle, which means that, you know, the curves are way too flat uh, where we are, which means that basically financials insurance should be doing much better. Obviously, Europe is heavily weighted uh, towards those sectors. And obviously, like industrials, I mean, we're really like going into um, macro-revolution, which is um, uh, basically favoring those sort of sectors that that basically had been stagnating. Um, I mean, if, if you actually take out uh, tech uh, uh, in the U.S., and if you don't look at the U.S., Europe, European stocks have basically been stagnating for the last 20 years, and I've only just broken out of like a 20-year triangle, just like, um, I think it was last month, right? So yeah. the, the the upside is just enormous, and um, Japan and, and, probably falls in that in that category too, having broken yeah. it maybe earlier in the year, later last year. Sorry. So, so it's just those trades that like everybody was were like called calling the widow makers, like you know selling JGPs, buying European stocks, selling bonds. For me, it's like basically the trades that everybody still look at you and they're like, what? You know, I've lost so much money doing those trades, but I've never recommended them before. I've, you know, it's only like started last year. So so it's all down to like the ongoing macro revolution. And and again, I, I want to repeat it. It's just what, what's really mind blowing. It's, it's just such a massive move that it will not get priced in a few months. Um, and, and that's why we're basically like keeping... Uh, chasing price action and 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 you know like every month I'm basically like a, a look, looking into all my seams and and making sure that it still makes sense and that I should keep chasing because it's it's really important at every level to really make sure like you know you still want to belong after that eighty percent move and and you know it's every year is basically made uh, out of um, not having the right trade but actually having the conviction. To actually push that trade and to not like you know look at ten percent and be like you know I'm okay with that. Sorry. How does how does gold fit into that framework? Um, or commodities sorry. more generally? Yeah. Well, I mean, gold a little bit more specifically, but certainly commodities broader. Yeah. Uh, so so gold, I think you know, perfect. Sorry. No You're popular. Yeah. It's just my 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 French phone. Yeah. Um, uh, ringing. It's probably like for the holiday that I'm planning this summer. <laughs> um, so gold has been like perfectly correlated with like real real rates. So mm -hmm. it, it's it's not really a hedge against inflation. It's basically a trade uh, to trade um, basically like um, financial repression. So, you know, for me, we, we headed out of financial repression uh, because partly because the crypto world is like the rubber band that is going to be pushing um, central banks away from financial repression. In the end, if real rates were, were at plus 2% or at least positive, you wouldn't have this issue with the crypto world that central banks are having right now. Um, but also 
the fiscal side is really the reason, the, the, the boost in the fiscal side is really the reason why we can finally uh, get normalization on the monetary side. So I really strongly believe that the, the current period of like ultra um, loose monetary policy and like massive um, uh, financial repression will end up with less financial repression, which means there isn't much value in, in, in buying gold, uh, in my opinion. In fact, I probably think, it, I think it's going down. Um, but obviously, completely different uh, story for, for commodities, uh, where basically pricing power, uh, continuation, the fact that I really think uh, demand, the demand boost uh, from the fiscal stimulus is, um, is not going to be temporary. Uh, I mean, you can see from like today's retail sales uh, that the checks are clearly being spent. And I've just, you know, looking at my analysis, uh, you can clearly see as well that we're, we're going away from, um, from, from like basically zero uh, money velocity to what I call like escape velocity. So escape velocity is basically when, when, the, when the economy can start uh, moving on its own again without needing to be like pushed uh, constantly by like fiscal and, and monetary side. So I think that's really going to be the same in, in this year and, and next year is basically moving away from financial repression, which is, again, that's very positive move as well. And not one that we should be fearing that much for equities. Um, I think, you know, when I see like um, on Wednesday, uh, equities selling off on much higher rates. I'm like, you know, I, I think we should be worried when when equities are selling off on lower rates, because that will that would mean basically, you know, we get getting back to the old world of basically stagnation apart from tech. Um, but yes, triple with tech for the last um, ten years, we were in stagnation. So it sounds like you're 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 thinking about the next uh, few years as as you describe it, lower financial repression. So you're not even perhaps considering yield curve control, right? Because I think a lot of people see the mountain of debt that uh, the U.S. has had to accumulate and is probably going to continue to accumulate, and so has Europe, to finance all this relief and to bring fiscal uh, policies in alignment with what central bankers have been calling for for the last few years, begging for some help. So what is this going to be doing for for, for, for deficits and in, in, in is this your way of perhaps introducing MMT into the the, the zeitgeist? Do, do, do you think that's something that's going to be fully embraced by U.S. and perhaps by other countries in in, in trying to fight the the uh, I mean the the constraints of the debt uh, mountain that they're in? Uh, firstly, on on yield curve control, I think. In the current environment, it's it's a complete nonsense, and and that's part also. But I do believe that that's part of the reason why the curves are so flat. There's this sort of like entrenched view, and that yield curve control will come at some point. I think yield curve control would come when we are in like such a entrenched deflationary environment that you would have to basically peg the long end to get like real yields, uh, real yields down. That's not at all the the the, the markets we're in right now. Um, so I, I really do not believe that yield curve control come in at, at any point um, in that expansion. Uh, I think you know the long end will price um, uh, will, will price conditions, macro conditions, where they are eventually 
rather than where they should be. <laughs> Again, you know, come back coming back to your to your introduction. Um, I think you know if we get to like uh, levels of um, real yields in in the one year that are say like one percent with real growth, which is potentially like double uh, potential, let's say at like three percent, then you've got absolutely no issue um, actually financing your debt, and and in fact your debt ratio will massively improve. So it, it's all about where yields are compared to where real growth is. And, and, and really the game is not to have like zero yield or negative real, real yields. The game really is to have like real yields lower than real growth. And that will actually get your, um, uh, your debt ratio to come back down on its own. So, you know, it's almost like a case of like printing as much as you can so that you get uh, to escape velocity and then your economy is starting flying on its own. And you don't have to worry about where the curve is. Um, you know, I hope that answers your question. So who buys the um, who's who buys the extra debt issuance, right? If we got five and ten trillion dollars of of debt coming into the market over the next, you know, it'll probably be over the next five or ten years. But who buys all that excess debt? I think that part of the yield cold, yield curve control thesis is that there aren't enough natural buyers of the debt to facilitate the fiscal expansion that would catalyze this natural growth phenomenon. So how do we get from from here to there um, without a major well, spike in, in intermediate and long-term rates? So don't get me wrong. That, what I'm saying doesn't mean that the Fed's not going to keep buying some of that debt. But what I mean is there's no reason why the curve shouldn't be priced more um, in tune uh, if the Fed is not buying everything, then it's only just a marginal. It's it's not the marginal buyer, which means that real real yields can still go higher, even if the Fed is financing part of part of that debt. Um, so yeah, I mean, and and there's also like some that are going to. I mean, most of the world right now still believes that we're headed back to deflation. Um, if you're looking at the curve, so you know. Any levels that are basically like nominal positive nom nominal yields are going to be attractive to anyone who thinks that you know we haven't reached escape velocity. That basically you know at some point rates are going to go higher, crash equities, crash the economy again, and 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 rates are going back to zero. So that there's basically like a, a whole world of like different views um, that are still going to ensure that um, the, the U.S. economy is being financed. And, and if it's not, then, you know, obviously you've got MMT and, and, and the Fed in as well. And I, I don't think the Fed will be um, away from, from this market anytime soon. So as we, we think about perhaps the, the uh, uh, rebalancing of the current mismatch in supply and demand that's going on in 2021 and perhaps spilling over into 2022, do you see any risks of perhaps us going back to what uh, Summers called secular stagnation, right? The the aging uh, populations in the developed world and the, the you know the unfavorable demographics and that dynamic and, and, and that that spilling back into that that tipping back into uh, uh, that deflationary environment. If the velocity, the escape velocity that you're describing, uh, doesn't follow through. So we, we, we do have some base effects that we're seeing in the numbers, the recent CPI data and all that. So we do, we could see the next couple of years really providing a roaring 20s sort of feeling toward, toward, towards a, a 
bullish environment, but uh, what are some of the risks that, that, that you see to your current base scenario? So in, in terms of demographics, um, we used to be growing the labor force, for example, in the U.S. at like around 2% before 2010, I think. The, the level is about 2%. two, two uh, we're basically headed to like 0.3%. I think the, the forecast are for like mid-2025, uh, for, for basically 2025, so for the, so the mid-20s. So in terms of like demographics and secular stagnation driven by demographics, I think we've already hit um, the worst um, in terms of like, you know, pricing and, and in terms of uh, expectations. After that, uh, we basically have like all boomers uh, retired, uh, potentially, you know, starting to divest. Uh, so to the equilibrium uh, between investment and, and, and savings uh, is, is basically sort of like much less clear from 2025. And, and so... In terms of like secular stagnation and, and demographics, I think we've basically priced what needed to be priced, which is basically like a, a labor force and, and trend growth that basically collapsed like 2% just because of like a, a lower population and, and labor force and probably lack of immigration as well. Um, but I think that should be like, yeah, I don't think that's going to be driving markets as much because I think it, it's sort of like an old story and, and we're going to be headed to like different narrative uh, on, on the demographic and, and savings and like all those like imbalances are really changing from the middle of like 2020s. And I think in terms of like where we were going from two to zero um, labor force growth, uh, I think it's already priced and it's sort of like, uh, you know, pre, pre-COVID kind of, you know, macro narrative that we're not going back to. Uh, now, of course, if if there is, if I'm wrong on 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 escape velocity, um, you know, which you know could be possible from from like 2023, uh, you know, you you're starting to see like a, a little bit of a slowdown, and um, then you know, I'd be fast to like, um, but that's not where where we're headed right now. I mean, I'm trying to like think of like a you know next trade like six months a year you know what happened from there is just going to depend on where we are from there and and i'm not trying to really um i hate forecast um i think you know you need to look at um, where you are like months after months uh, i've got a very strong idea of where we are uh, un- unlike the fed i think i've got a very strong view that um inflation and demand um the demand pool uh, is is not temporary, um, and when I mean tempor- not temporary, I mean definitely we we, we it's gonna it's gonna pull through uh, into 2022. Uh, but you know, don't ask me to to tell you about 2023. I just don't know. <laughs> I think it's already good to have really good idea about 2022. Yeah, very very pragmatic approach. <laughs> you know, yeah, especially so in the we, current environment. No, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I was gonna say so. Um, yeah. Uh, there's definitely a um, interest in learning more about your um, your crypto views in the comments, but specifically, some people are asking about. Um, it's the one it thing like where I'm really not an expert at. <laughs> well, yeah, but you've been climbing the the curve really quickly, yeah. and and you've got I think stronger opinions about maybe the ether ecosystem. So if if you wouldn't mind, maybe share some of your thoughts on on crypto in general and 
if you still feel like ether may be um, the, the more attractive way to engage with with crypto then why you think that and and how you're um, playing that out so I mean in ether what I really love is is the idea that as you grow the the monetary growth like the the, the monetary growth of ether, uh, basically, the price is going up. So higher adoption, exponential um, interest uh, in the ecosystem basically brings the currency higher. So it's almost as if, in a way, in my head, it's almost as if, um, you know, the more you printed dollar and, and the higher the dollar, which means basically you can never really debase. <laughs> uh, so I, I really like um, um, that view and, and, and that's the way I understand things. And, and I'm saying like... a, a a lot of dynamism in this ecosystem, in this new ecosystem with like smart contracts. Um, again, I'm not a massive believer in like pure DeFi. So I think, you know, I like the, the, the customer service, uh, but I really strongly believe that there is a need um, to democratize finance, um, to move away from traditional, uh, you know, I can't get leverage. Why is it that only like hedge fund managers can get leverage. Why is it that you, you only hedge fund managers can uh, actually protect themselves against like debasement of of their savings? Why is it just just the rich, just the wealthiest are are, are basically able to uh, to fight the, the the debasement? So I really see like the the crypto space as something that I could just tell my mom, that I could tell my my, my best friend in Paris, and I'll be like, look at that because. That's a way to basically hedge yourself, and and I, I understand it. And because I can see where it's going eventually, I can actually tell you that, you know, it's it's probably like a sound, you know. Look, I'm I've only got like ten percent of uh, of my savings in there, but you know, I feel comfortable um, uh, with that because I see where we are going. I see a need for it, and I see. Um, as I say, like democratization of finance and basically get banks out of their comfort zone and also get central banks out of their comfort zone to solve issues that I have today as a, you know, yeah. uh, as a human being. Um, and, and so I love the sort of like rubber band that the crypto world is, is bringing. And again, totally aware that at the moment, the, the main thing it facilitates is basically speculation. But they, but obviously, like traditional finance is all about speculation as well. So it's it's you know I don't see that as a negative. It's just basically speculation towards something different, um, where I, I, I really see a meaning. You know, um, in Europe, you're probably not aware. You guys probably not aware because there's such a developed capital markets in in the US and and I think in Canada as well. But in Europe, there's basically like uh, no capital markets. All, all it is is basically a banking system. And all, if you've got any ideas, basically you need a loan from a bank. And, and banks with like flat curves, they've got no interest in, in, in lending you money. I mean, that, that's like the reason why the guy who basically like um, uh, invented the um, uh, Moderna vaccine um, actually, you know, went to go get funding in, in the US. And he explained like in France, there was no chance I would have come out with, with this vaccine because the, the, the funding is just not there. So that's another thing that basically is sorted out, uh, um, would be sorting out uh, the Europe Europe as well. Is like the crypto world is basically a really easy way to basically like raise money for like towards a project. 
um, a project that can be really transparent. And, um, and, and so that's another part of the equation as well, which maybe like Americans wouldn't be thinking is, is as important. Um, but, you know, a project that can be, you know, music, that can be art, that can be, you know, it's just like basically so much dynamic. Uh, and, uh, and I can see like so much increased monetary in this world where, you know, fundamentally everything becomes an asset rather than consumption. So you could, you know, basically buy art thinking, you know what, that's not consumption. That's actually an asset that I can borrow against. Uh, you know, I could borrow against my financial uh, portfolio, which at the moment, potentially, I could do again with a very uh, keen um, um, private banker, but everybody couldn't. M most people couldn't, right? So, so there is basically a world of like uh, potential assets that that can basically like generate more uh, money growth, and and that I find is really fascinating. The fact the money growth in the crypto world is going to be competing with the money growth in central bank world, and potentially you know putting against each other. So there's something that you said there in in the space of ETH that I actually connected a few dots for me. Are are you? Oh, oh did we? Is she, is she frozen? Oh, you're there. Um, so the the idea that the ecosystem in which ETH operates actually triggers growth that is has real rates of return attached to the underlying commodity. So we, yeah. we spend a lot of time talking about the ecosystem of the normal world where it's a bit uncertain. Yeah, we, we need this escape velocity and, and growth in order to overcome the aging population, the debt burden, the potential deflationary forces, the contractions in, in earnings that the implications for the businesses. And it, it's, it's sort of, you've got participants with your central banks with varying um, objective functions, but here in the world of, of ether, you actually have almost at the moment, a guaranteed, not guaranteed, uh, uh, sort of a high level of ecosystem growth, which in fact guarantees that the underlying commodity outperforms. And so you have this positive growth loop. Am I, yeah. am I conveying that well, or is that, is that that light just sort of lit up for me? That, that's exactly how I understand it, and how I basically got really excited about it. Is is basically exponential growth in the ecosystem that's basically that basically fuels uh, ether upside. Uh, obviously, any any transactions in Ethereum is basically like being fueled by like ether and basically like generate fees that in that ecosystem, instead of going to shareholders, are actually going to like, um, you know, the users. And and I find that really fascinating. Uh, I, I like the way, um, I think it's, I can't remember, I think it's the CEO of Celsius saying, uh, you know, the, the way I generate like the 10% return on, on your dollars, on your stable coins. Well, actually, JP Morgan is generating 10, 15% as well. But the difference is like, I'm actually giving it to the users. And and I think there's going to be a lot more of that, and and it doesn't only apply to like banking uh, as well. Uh, I think it will apply to like many social media where you know. And right now, I put anything on Twitter, and basically Twitter benefits from it. And and I'm basically like creating content and and YouTube, and we're creating content right now, but we're not really getting any anything from it except for like you know marketing and uh, etc in, in the new world of like crypto you could actually getting direct benefit and and basically cut out youtube completely 
um, which which I find is really interesting. And and right. again, all in the world of like smart contracts, and and of course, there's other blockchains that are going to be competing. Uh, against each other as well, but I think they're all going to work as well in the same sort of like ecosystem. Um, and and you know, I like the world of um, ether. That's you know, I'm starting to really get a understand it and and feel comfortable thinking there is uh, a point where it's going to become inevitable. You know, a bit like Amazon has become inevitable when like you know, 20 years ago it was just like what you know, like. You mean they're going to be like uh, growing exponentially by like selling books? I mean, it makes no sense. And of course, not with amazing like customer service and, and you know, they're now selling everything in, in the whole world. Resistance is futile. Yeah. <laughs> so on the, um, on the DeFi, it's, um, do you sort of perceive DeFi as being um, an answer to the, I mean, really, it's it's giving the people the ability to create their own banking infrastructure and share in the spreads on their savings, right? Yeah. So you're sort of cutting out the middleman of the bank, and you're allowing those with capital to to lend that capital out in a structured way with lots of um, checks and balances. That so far, despite several pretty incredible um, shocks has proved amazingly resilient, right? But you're, you're not complete, you're not confident that this DeFi um, revolution is going to overtake the banks. What are some of your reservations there? No, I think banks are going to join in. I mean, I know at the moment it makes, you know, it's 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 a massive hurdle to actually look at regulation and, and you know, but it's probably like more difficult in the US as well. I mean, um, in Europe, you already have like, uh, you know, banks like looking at like ways to, to basically dip into this world, whether it's with subsidiaries. Um, and I don't think central banks and, and treasuries or, you know, governments are going to be able to resist it because it makes so much sense in terms of like basically democratic, democratizing finance. And if they're going to come out with CBDs, um, with, with central bank currencies, um, you know, it's, it's sort of like a system where those currencies are going to be migrating as well. So for me, it, you know, I don't see how you can cut one side. Or, and and I, I totally agree that, of course, at, at the moment it's very difficult um, to have like both legs and you know to be traditional finance and to migrate and to extend into uh, uh, into crypto, uh, but I think in the end you know banks will find a way that 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 happens and and you know I think if one thing banks are like extremely um, um, uh, you know smart in terms of like looking at uh, uh, new new ways of like doing business and 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 new ways of like you know making profits and and I think it's Again, it's like all about, um, you know, potentially tightening your profit margin a bit. But if you actually have like a world of like much higher uh, money velocity, much higher credit, uh, you know, if your dollar is used like 10 times a day instead of like using once, then suddenly it doesn't really matter that your margin squeezed by like 10 times. So I think banks will embrace one way or the other. And, and if they don't, um, you know, I think it's the crypto world that is going to move toward banks, uh, toward like, you know, which I would call the shadow banking. And yeah. um, I don't see how that, that's going to disappear anytime soon. 
So you've been. Sorry, Richard, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask. We've had a couple of questions on this theme, and I think I I might have asked uh, something tangentially about this earlier. But I'm I'm wondering uh, what are your thoughts on on the currency space? I mean, fiat currencies are under attack, uh, at least by the narrative if not outright by the the uh, crypto asset revolution. But what are some of your thoughts in terms of the direction of maybe the U.S. dollar for stars, because everything kind of trades against it? And and, and where do you see the, the direction for the window of time that you're comfortable uh, uh, trying to, to see forward? Um, so at, at the moment, I don't think the dollar is the A trade. Um, you know, I think there's like two... Um, uh, so there's sort of like, like the front end of the curve, which is basically pulling um, real rates like to like minus two, minus three, minus four percent, as we talked about before. And obviously, this is a massive downside for the dollar. Uh, but on the back of that, on, on the back of that massive downside in, in front end real yields, I actually think that long end real yields and, and basically like. Uh, the U.S. economy's growth potential is going to be much higher in the end, which I think is going to be priced on the curve as well, meaning like much higher long-end rates. So I think the dollar is like kind of pulled in between um, in between the two sides, and um, and I just don't think it's the best expression of my macro um, uh, landscape to like basically trade the dollar at the moment. So I've got uh, basically what I've what I've said is basically to trade extremes, and um, and in fact it's it's worked really well for the past like two three months. Uh, to basically like you know take the other way when when the narrative is getting a bit too excited uh, about one way or the other, um, yeah. So like not you know I, I've got still um, um, an inclination to think the dollar is going down, uh, but I don't think it's the A trade. More of a range bound outlook, uh, yeah. At least for the moment, okay. yeah. So um, before we um, came on live, you were mentioning that you had. Um, lots of walks in the woods and time to be contemplative. And I'm just wondering, and you said lots of ideas are coalescing. I'm wondering if you could give us a sneak peek of um, what you're currently focusing on and what's really exciting you and what you're focused on from a research perspective for the next issue. Uh, I mean, firstly, I'm not started thinking about the next issue because I've just issued the, the last one like two days ago. So I like to give myself a, a, a bit of like a holiday time to like talk to my clients, um, uh, really look at them uh, as things, and, and and I'll I won't get ready for the next issue before the uh, the next two weeks. Um, you know, at the moment I'm surfing on on the current one, uh, but yeah, still very much think that um, where markets is wrong is basically to price the sort of like boom bust. So what 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 markets clearly believe right now is that the current boom is going to lead to a bust. And that's why uh, the long end of the curve is, is not actually moving. I think that's wrong. Um, another thing which I think is is wrong, but again, that's like a theme that's been going on for a while. And and I think there is massive value in in sticking to those, to your sims with conviction uh, if if they're working and, and, and you know, not basically try to de deviate like uh, next month into something completely different, just just for the sake of like uh, saying something new. So, you know, for it's never happened before, but basically my themes are like now like uh, 15 months old. Um, but, you know, I'm basically writing um, every month about new ways to look at things. Um, I tell you what, until last month, 
my whole reason behind like recommending like reflation, re reflationary trades, um, you know, whether it's like with long inflation, long, uh, long equities um, and et cetera. Uh, the whole reason was, was a framework that had completely changed, but I had no real evidence. So it was all like sort of like um, presumptions, like assumptions that look, that's completely different. That should be a completely different macro world. Uh, so we need to reprice uh, the balance of risk on, on, on inflation and growth completely differently. The new thing this month is that I can actually show it to you. Um, you know, I can actually now show you what's happening. Um, but until two months ago, all I knew is that it should make sense that we, we should price the balance of risk differently. Um, now I can actually tell you that you know, the balance of risk should be priced differently. And also it's not temporary. So every month you get new pieces of, of data, you get like, a, and, and my, my job is basically to, um, to, to give clients the conviction to, stray, to stay on the, trades, uh, on the trade. Uh, again, you know, like um, every year, you, you basically have like two, three, three trades that make your year. Um, if you basically like, uh, uh, you know, have, have a great idea and then take it out after a month and, and never manage to re-enter, basically you're, you, you basically will go bankrupt much faster than if you get a wrong trade. <laughs> um, so, so, so I think it's really important to, to just, you know, constantly like revise, um, you know, what you're looking at and, and taking new evidence uh, but I'm I'm trying to not talk about something different just for the sake of of talking about something different because we are basically repricing a, a macro macroeconomic revolution, uh, something that I've never experienced in in my whole career. Um, you know, I've, I've started looking at macroeconomics in 1998, um, which was basically the beginning of like sort of the the great moderation. Um, what you know, we we basically low growth, low inflation, uh, you know, and, and low volatility as well, um, in a way, and we're completely exiting that, and and it, it's extremely exciting. Uh, I mean, I think you know some some of the portfolio managers that have missed completely the set off in rates and 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 the massive like um, equity returns in the past twelve years are telling you that macro is boring, but you know it's absolute and that you should only look into crypto. But it's absolutely not the case. I mean, you know, basically macro has been the most exciting I've ever seen it. And, and the opportunities have been enormous. And let's not forget one thing as well. Like, you know, if I can put like 10% of my savings into crypto, um, you know, and, and I double my money in a month, it's great. But actually equities have gone up like, what, 80% in, in the past 12 months. And I can actually put like confidently 50% of my savings in there. Uh, you get much greater return for something that you've got much greater conviction about and that you can put much more of your wealth in than, you know, something where you're really not quite sure and you, you're using as a lottery ticket. I can't put all my savings in a lottery ticket. Yeah, so letting I mean, your winners I, run, right? Letting your winners run, like spoken like a true trend follower, even though we haven't said that term <laughs> at all. But uh, I like the way you yeah. framed that. That jives with our thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to, to also like uh, you know the the the, the, the basically the uh, the size. I mean, it's not about getting anything right. It's about getting it right in the right size, <laughs> and um, and and you know basically it takes uh, a lot of conviction, a lot of work to 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 keep the, the the size that you should you should be having in the markets to actually make the year on the trade that you've been believing in.
we had a taste of interesting macro markets from sort of 2003 to 2008-9 and then the central bank put kind of took over and US tech sucked all of the oxygen out of markets for yeah. 10 years and it's really exciting to finally be coming back into a market where a diversity of views um, might pay off, variant perception might pay off, second, third order levels of thinking might pay off, and um, you know, the a much broader spectrum of humanity will be able to participate in yeah. the growth and excitement and innovation and productivity that um, that may lie ahead if your thesis plays out. So I, I agree, it's potentially a very exciting time to be in markets and just to be a member of society again. So look forward yeah. to the next few years. Well, listen, Juliet, this has been really, really fascinating. And um, you've been incredibly generous with your time and your, your insights. Um, having read your most recent two reports, um, we'll definitely look forward to reading future um, reports from you and, and would look forward to having future conversations. But thank you so much for your time here today and um, have a great have a great weekend. Yeah, you've been very generous. Uh, we had yeah. high expectations and you've exceeded them. So uh, this was really great. Thank you very much. Oh, but before we yeah. go, though, uh, Juliet, where could everyone find you, your Twitter handle, your website, your research offering? Um, maybe you can just let everybody know where you're at and where they can get access to more of your thoughts and insights. So, um, so my research, like as opposed to, you know, people are always like um, uh, very, find it really weird when they contact me that actually what I'm trying to have is as few readers as possible for my research. So I'm, I'm really trying to create value by giving out as little as possible. So that's why I very rarely give interviews and, um, and, and actually I price at the level where, you know, um, I, I, so not for retail. Um, in other words. And the reason is not that I don't want retail. It's just really that I want few readers. Um, I, I'm a very strong believer that if you put out research to like millions of people, by the time you press uh, send, uh, it's lost its value completely. Um, I think that there's much higher value in having um, uh, few, as few clients uh, as possible. So with that in mind, um, my, my clients are uh, in majority um, you know, like um, institutional um, hedge funds, real money, uh, family offices. Um, I've got a few high net worths that um, I've been uh, following me for, for for a few years as well. And um, they can find me on on um, jdiresearch.com, um, which is my uh, my 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 website. Um, any new subscriber new subscriber is going to get access to everything I've ever written. Uh, on the website so for the past six years so that means you know there's also um, some students um, that are actually really excited uh, uh, about what I write um, my, my Twitter handle is um, at Juliet uh, GDI and again you know I, I put out some like interesting um, uh, thought but always in, um, uh, in, in you have to bear in mind that um, you know it's, it's really like pure marketing because I'm I need to keep the value for, for my clients. Um, bush. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So a lot of it is really amuse bush and like kind of like throwing ideas here and there. But you know, I'm I'm not putting um, I'm not giving 
uh, value. I'm like, I'm, I strongly believe that as soon as you give anything for free, nobody wants to pay for it anymore. Um, so, you know, that's um, that's why I also don't give any free trials. So, you know, don't call me for free trials. Um, you know, I've, I've realized with my experience that anyone who wants a free trial never ends up paying for it. So, um, <laughs> sorry if I sound a bit, um, um, you know, skeptical. Yeah, <laughs> you're but, connecting you know, deeply with that's people. That's the on voice this call. of experience, is what that is. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I make a living of of my research, and and I I don't get paid by like um, basically um, uh, putting out stuff on Twitter. I don't. And I mean, those guys who do it all day long, I don't. Um, I don't actually understand their point. I mean, one day someone needs to tell me um, what what they make of it. I mean, do they get like a advertisement fees or or, or something? Um, I don't get it. No, anyway, so I'm never going to be the kind of like 200,000 uh, followers on Twitter, uh, but I'm I'm always very keen to give out a lot in in a few interviews that I do per years, and and that's how I give back to society. <laughs> Love it. Well, we look forward to having you on at some point in the future and reconnecting. That would be an amazing opportunity if you'd be kind enough to do that at some point in the future. And um, uh, thank you all for joining us at To Resolve Riffs. As I said early on, like and subscribe and share, write a review that helps us and uh, uh, grow the, the following and allows us to get uh, fantastic guests like Juliet on to come and share her thoughts. And I think that's it for today. Oh, yeah. and next, thank you very next, much. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Next week, we have our one year anniversary of this, uh, of the Resolve Riffs show. So we will be uh, recounting the last year and um, talking about the guests we've had on and some of the insights we've garnered. So that should be a bit of fun. Have a great weekend all. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Enjoy. Cue the music. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.